podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello listeners, I'm Mo Chatra and welcome to another episode of Money Talks. And we're recording this the day after the night before uh, when we had one of perhaps the worst cases of officiating ever seen in the Premier League. And uh, we saw Liverpool um, absolutely crucified from an officiating perspective by a catalogue of bad decisions um, at the hands of Simon Cooper, Darren England and others. And um, that's something that will live long in the memory. And obviously, the debate around that will rage for quite some time. Um, but we are still looking our wounds. But despite that, we will crack on and talk about um, other matters. And most notably, a story that broke um, just in the last several days, which is that FSG, Fenway Sports Group, have sold um, a small portion of Liverpool Football Club to a group called Dynasty Equity. So not Liberty Equity, as I erroneously called them on Twitter, but Dynasty Equity. And um, it is believed that the sale is for a value of between $100 and $200 million. It has not been disclosed what percentage of um, the club that represents, though um, it would be fair to assume that it would be a very, very small uh, portion, perhaps in the 2 to 3% range. Um, which would then pay the club's value at around four and a half billion. And, um, this is something that, um, came a little bit out of the blue uh, to some, but then less so to others. I mean, in the last few months, there had been murmurings and whispers that FSG were still looking to sell, um, a small minority stake. Uh, and obviously there had been certain journalists who, Periodically, was saying that FSG was still in talks with one or two, um, but for all intents and purposes, a lot of that discussion had been relatively quiet. Now, um, it is reported that the funds will be used to essentially wipe out the bulk, if not all, of the uh, bank debt that um, the club currently has. And just to clarify, um, that bank debt um, essentially can be um, broken down into two parts. The first of which relates to um, originally um, withdrawing the funds of 200 million back in 2020 um, when the club exercised the credit facility and um, a fair, uh, the bulk of that had been repaid, um, but in the region about 88 million um, was still um, sitting on the club's balance sheet at the end of the 21 22 financial year. Um, on top of that, um, the intercompany debt, um, where the club owes FSG 
uh, money for monies um, borrowed to the club to finance the main stand expansion, which obviously completed a number of years ago. The balance on that sat at, again at the end of 21-22 in the region of about 71 million. Um, so these um, two amounts combined amount to 159 million pounds or had at the end of 21-22. You would expect that um, debt to have reduced during 22-23, though we will only know the extent to which it did reduce um, when the accounts for 22-23 are published. Um, and made available by a company's house um, in early March in 2024. And um, that is, again, something that we'll have to keep out an eye out for um, a year later in March 2025, when the accounts should reveal how much money um, was used to uh, reduce um, bank debts and the intercompany uh, loan as well. And, you know, that is something I'm sure that the club itself or FSG, for that matter, won't disclose. So we'll have to wait and see what the accounts have to say on that. Um, but um, that, that is something that clearly um, is, is a positive step in, in one respect, in that monies that um, the club would have to use from its own generated revenues to reduce that debt um, can instead be invested into other areas um, and, and one particular area that many fans, most fans, in fact, would perhaps like to see that invested into a bit more is um, the signing of players. Um, and clearly there has been a widespread uh, perception that um, Liverpool um, ha has perhaps not spent as much as it could have done or it should have done. So with all that said, um, let, let's, let's delve into this then. Um, first of all, um, I want to know, and I'll come to you, Mo, um, and um, just just, uh, just uh, in, in terms of introductions, I should have started. Um, I, I'm, I'm delighted to be joined by Mo Schumann and uh, Nizami, who have both been recent guests here on Money Talks. Um, so, Mo, I, I will come to you first, if I may. Um, what, what can you tell us about uh, Dynasty Equity and... and why, why do you think they have chosen to make this move? Um, so Dynasty Equity was a fund set up in January 2022 from uh, the information that's available online. It's a um, Delaware company, uh, just like FSG. So if you wanted to see their incorporation documents, um, their future accounts, etc., cetera, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of that information uh, publicly available. Um, but but there is uh, bits and pieces of information out there that they um, allowed, probably uh, speaking to the media, etc., uh, to be released. So um, since uh, January 2022, they've been on a um, run-defined funding, and their target was a billion dollars initially, uh, which, uh, to be honest with you, by the um, standards of the industry, isn't a lot of money at all. But it, it, it is a, a brand new fund, so who, who knows what their what their target is and and um, what they're they're going towards. But um, it's also not clear whether they've succeeded in actually closing out that one billion dollar fund. But again, it's it's early days, uh, so let's let's see what happens there. Um, one of one of the the key bits of information though uh, that I found interesting was that. Um, 
David Ginsburg, one of the uh, executives at FSG, a shareholder and uh, a director at FSG, uh, joined Dynasty as a as an advisor um, on, I, th- I believe, the fourth of November two thousand and twenty-two. Um, literally four or five days before the club was um, publicly and officially put up for sale. Uh, that could be a, a coincidence. Um, uh, but in my opinion, uh, probably not a, a, a coincidence, but that's something that, that we can, we can talk about before. Uh, sorry, a bit later on in, in, in terms of, um, why FSG, uh, may have chosen to go, uh, for a minority sale as opposed to a, a full sale. So that's, that's, um, that's basically the, the bits and pieces that's available on Dynasty at the moment, but I'm sure more information will come out in, in due course. And, um, uh, one of the, the other interesting bits that will come out, um, about this is the, uh, fact that, uh, the company's house publishes, uh, the SH01 form, um, within 28 days of a new share issue. So, um, at that point, we'll find out exactly how much money has been paid into the club and in return for what percentage of, of ownership, because they haven't, they haven't published those details for some reason. Uh, and, and I think that will probably be more interesting just to see what exactly they're paying off, because the reports in the media range from, uh, the 87 million bank debt only to, to both of the bank debts and the intercompany debts, uh, put together. Um, you, you'll see the numbers bandied, bandied about being $100 million to $200 million. $100 million is the bank debt and $200 million is both of the debts combined. So, so the, the journalists didn't have to, um, guess too hard uh, at the ballpark. So, uh, that SHO1 will, will, uh, probably tell us all the information we need to know within a couple of weeks. Okay. Thanks for that, Mo. That was really, uh, interesting. Um, Nizami, was there anything you wanted to add then about why you perhaps think um, the equity have um, looked to buy into Liverpool Football Club? Um, and also, do you have any other information about um, the equity as well that you'd like to share? So I started looking into this. Um, unfortunately, not going to have too much time. But essentially, um, Dynasty is was set up, um, as Mo mentioned, um, by two asset managers, um, Jonathan Nelson and Don Cornwell, I believe. Um, and they had, their background was the uh, Providence equity. Um, so they essentially have, ha- have a history of advising and leading, um, sports deals. And I think that was probably the trigger of, of, um, of this interest because I, yeah, I would assume that they were part of the team that we looked at when we were attempting to sell the um sell um uh Liverpool Football Club or FSG were attempting to sell it. And those advisors were some of the people that they reached out to. And I think ultimately what's what seems to have happened is that they've then gone gone away, created their own fund and in and basically as their first investment, i.e. their first step into this in into this industry, it looks like Liverpool Football Club is their flagship um uh investment so they've started off and they wanted to do something kind of high profile i guess and this is what they've uh you know they've got one of the biggest names in world sports i would argue um as their as their starter for 10 so it's great pr it's fantastic for them and also i guess um 
with that background of being able to um in the future access um potential investors um if if that's if that's the direction of travel so i think that's that's quite an interesting thing um and i think mo i think that's I'm, i'd be very very in- interested sorry just to touch on the point that you made about exactly the numbers i think i'd be very very interested to that, to see those numbers because i think that will at this point in time the the numbers will define what the valuation of the of Liverpool Football Club is currently in the eyes of FSG, and that variation is so large. So I think the Athletic article had a hundred to two hundred million for a stake of one point nine percent to three point eight percent. That potentially has a margin of about seven seven yards, so seven billion dollars is the margin there, and oh. that potentially the valuation is so it could be as low as two and a half yards, going up to ten and a half yards, depending if you take the um, either side of the of that equation so i'd be very very intrigued to see what they came in at and what they thought was the appropriate amount of um uh sorry the appropriate valuation to sell a minority stake so it was an interesting um point going back to november last year then uh Army, that um when the club um was said to be um looking for a buyer or fsg in particular um, and that was a story that was broken by David Ornstein of The Athletic. Um, the word I was hearing is that um, John W. Henry was looking for a figure uh, in excess of four and a half billion, and that's four and a half billion pounds. And a lot of the valuations um, from um, those within the finance sector um, were pitching the value of the club a lot lower. Um, in the region of about three billion, and I do recall um, Swiss Ramble um, writing a very, very good piece about um, uh, valuations for football clubs and covered Liverpool specifically. And under and he outlined the various um, valuation methodologies, and a lot of them were generally pitching the club's valuation um, in and around the three billion mark, give a few, give or take. Um, you know, a few hundred million this way or that way, but certainly nowhere near the four and a half billion. Um, and I think that the only valuation that was floating out there um, in that ballpark was from Forbes. Um, and I would argue that that valuation is um, not as perhaps reliable to go with as, as um, some some of the others. But at the, at the end of the day, we, we, especially with football, um, the value of any asset is ultimately what um, a, a buyer or potential buyer is prepared to pay. But nonetheless, um, that, that's what we ended up with. We ended up in a situation where, um, you know, what the owner wanted and the principal owner in particular versus what um, bidders were offering uh, were significantly far apart. So just on that subject then, um, so... We know that there was discussion about sale, and you know, despite what certain reports in the last few days have claimed, who, who, where the report suggested the club was never for sale, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's not true. Even Tom Werner himself said that um, they were exploring a sale, quote unquote. Um, the Boston Globe, owned by FSG, said that FSG were exploring a sale. Um, Ultimately, though, a sale did materialise and we have ended up with um, a minority investment from Dynasty Equity um, materialising. So 
FSG appeared to want a full sale. They've ended up selling only a very small proportion of the club. Um, what do we think has happened? So Nizami, let me start with you first on this. What, what do you think led to the club initially looking for a full buyout and ending up selling perhaps 2-3% worth of the club? Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. I think it was as simple as supply-demand. I think there was um, rumours in the market that um, sovereign states uh, were willing to spend a lot of money on football clubs. And this was, bear in mind, this was in amidst the, the Qatar World Cup situation. So there was a lot of sentiment in the region. Um, there was a lot of football, um, sorry, a lot of sentiment um, regarding football as as the primary driver for um, cultural and diversification of um, and globalization. And so it was kind of seen as one of the routes for modernization in the region. Um, I think what's transpired, and look, I have a very good friend of mine who basically works at Goldman um, in M&A, and he, he obviously does valuation models for firms on a daily basis. And he and his answer, when I spoke to him about it, he said, there is no valuation that you could ever reach the numbers that FSG were talking about because it's all, and, and, he, and literally he said to me, the only person who's willing to pay that is going to be an Arab state or um, some somebody in the Gulf, like a, a, a series of um, uh, billionaires in the Gulf that come together to basically do this as a... Um, as a yeah i mean i wouldn't even call it an investment decision i'd say a diversification strategy rather than necessarily just an investment decision so um so i think that's where it started i think that so at the points where those numbers were being branded about and chelsea being a trigger because i guess the, the interesting thing about something like a sale of something this unique is that there is no there is no marker point for for pricing right because it's all intangible Right. What's Liverpool's revenues? Well, there's 600 million. How do you get from um, from that um, very very simple discount cash flow calculations? How do you get from that to basically a valuation of billions? It just isn't viable, right? I mean, we can have a conversation about other valuation models. It just doesn't. There isn't one that exists that gets you to that number. So it's all intangibles, right? And we can have conversations about intangibles and growth rates and everything else. But to get a growth rate, sorry, to get a valuation that that high, your growth rate. Um, estimation has to be ridiculously high, right? I'm talking 20% ballpark. So I think we're in that situation where um, they, the sentiment was that somebody was willing to pay for a, a, a premium for a premier club. That then became almost within the, within the industry, the no, almost the, um, it was the, uh, it was something that everybody knew 
um, that, that people had been putting out feelers about being interested in investment. And I think at that point in time, when that differential between what FSU had invested, what they initially thought the valuation was at, and then what the numbers that were being branded around for other clubs in similar situations, I think that 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 delta became too much for FSU to sit 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 and wait. And so they explored these sales. And I think that in conjunction with the marker point where F, uh, Chelsea got sold for a valuation and the sentiment among everybody was that actually, um, given the intangible benefits, there are two essentially two clubs in, in the UK. There are, like globally speaking, there's Manchester United and Liverpool. And so when you're looking at, and I think we, we, we touched upon this last time, um, future revenue growth are very much intertwined with international media rights, not not necessarily domestic media rights, because we think that's going to plateau at some point relatively soon. So if that's the case and you want a club that will be at the forefront of that of that rise, I think then you have two options. You have Manchester United and you have Liverpool. And then you were getting valuations of four and a half yards on Chelsea, which was which was a, a definitive number that came in and was was executed on. And so therefore I think for FSG, it was a no-brainer. You had to investigate the potential of basically selling the club. I think that it was very much a um, a necessity at that point in time because the upside was too big. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, it was uh, something that um, I think was frustrating people that were involved. I mean, just, just another um, point I wanted to make around that story is that um, – Again, there were certain reports that stated that um, FSG never had discussions with um, parties from the Middle East. That, again, is categorically untrue. I, I say that because I spoke to representatives myself um, who, who were and, – and, and those that they were representing from Qatar, from Saudi, were absolutely very, very interested. But at the same time, they were not willing to pay – significantly above um, the valuations that um, various advisors were suggesting the club is worth. And this is the exact same issue that has um, caused Manchester United not to be sold either. The Glazers also, just like Fenway, have been seeking a valuation or, or a sale figure for Manchester United, which is well in excess of... Um, any valuation being put on that club by, um, you know, the various models used by, um, you know, various financial advisors. So that sale has not materialised for pretty much the same reason. Uh, both Gla- the Glazers and Fenway are of the view that um, their respective assets um, in the Premier League are worth considerably more than any valuation model suggests, and hence neither Liverpool for Fenway nor uh, United for um, the Glazers um, have seen sales materialise. Um, Mo, um, do, do you also um, uh, feel much the same way, um, that basically it was just a case of uh, FSG asking for too much and then they pivoted to this um, option of minority investment as a bit of a face-saving thing, or do you think there might have been other reasons as well? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think FSG brought into a lot of the uh, 
the hype, I think, in, in the Western world in relation to uh, assets that don't necessarily make cash or sometimes even burn through cash, but because of their um, outreach uh, to for like hearts and minds, um, they have a, a, an intrinsic value that that isn't reflected in the traditional valuation models. Um, but even in doing that, what you do is you limit your market to very a very small number of buyers and like like you guys said um essentially uh nation states or um very wealthy in- individuals so that's a very very small market and um yeah and they 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 realize that it's not you shouldn't always go by <laughs> forbes to to value your uh, your your company i think um i, I think forbes has a, a very media oriented um uh view of how to do valuations and they don't necessarily look at cash they, they simply look at revenue and uh things like um fan base size etc so yeah I, I completely agree with, with you guys on that mm-hmm. okay thank you and just sticking with you mo um so clearly fsg didn't then achieve that sale that they had sort um, going back to the autumn of last year and um you know, just more broadly speaking, perhaps in the last couple of years, um, a perceived relative lack of investment along with um, what has seemed at times and certainly an accusation leveled by certain people about a waning of interest by the owners um, was perhaps due to an extent, uh, due to the failure of these initiatives that FSG really pinned their hopes on. Um, the Super League and Project Big Picture in particular. So, um, you know, all, all of that combined then has then led to accusations that they have been lacking ambition, especially in the last um, two, three years. And again, some people uh, had tried to put two and two together to say, well, look, you know, um, so some of that was done um, to try and uh incentivize or, or make the club look more attractive to potential buyers as and when they were looking to um more actively seek a sale um and, and obviously there'll be others that will feel no that that was nothing at all to do with that potential lack of investment um that instead that was maybe due to other factors um but you know the long short is they are staying put so Given that, um, do you now think we'll see a change in how they've been leading the club? Do you think that they might look what has happened and with this investment coming in and perhaps them looking to stay around for a little bit longer, that they may um, start to show a more uh, proactive approach rather than a passive approach to stewardship and leadership of the club? And do you think that they might even do other things slightly differently? Or do you think we'll see much the same approach adopted by them, um, whether it comes to recruitment um, or other investment decisions, um, as we've seen over the last few years? I I think the way working in the industry, I I don't know if uh, Nizami will agree with me on or not, but in my experience in private equity, which uh, they're they're not too dissimilar from how these funds work and how uh, conglomerates like what like FSG work, they try to run very very efficient um, operating models. That's just part of the the culture 
in, in my opinion. And so um, part of that includes uh, things like cutting back on costs and making sure you're minimizing costs and where where you do have investment needs, you you try and do it at the best level, but with the smallest budget. So you try and scale up as much as possible. And I've always felt as though the way FSG run Liverpool is is a reflection of that. Um, and I think they, as a football fan, I've always felt like they always go into every single season with one or two shortcuts in there. And by shortcuts, I, I mean... Um, not necessarily bad things, but uh, an example is a James Milner signing a James Milner at the age of 29 um, on a free transfer. He can play it multiple positions um, and very kind of like a hybrid player, attacking and defensive. And and things like uh, Harvey Elliott, you've got um, who was signed on a free, uh, cheap anyway, um, but uh, a big talent. Same with um, uh, Fabio Carvalho. Uh, they they always look to do things like that that would um, that are opportunistic. I would say, so I don't think they will change the way um, Liverpool is run. I think they believe in that model, and I think they believe that that model um, bring brings success to an extent relatively relative to the the pounds they spend. Uh, the the thing is, um, I think our, obviously our expectations changed after we won the Champions League and the league. So uh, as fans, our expectations uh, increased. Whereas I don't feel as though FSGs really changed. They they are in the situation. They are the owners, and 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 I think they they would like to think that they they're not swayed by emotion. And I feel as though what what happened uh, two years ago was them uh, simply coming to the decision that look. Um, We've taken these shortcuts here and there. We can get away with another season or two without investing in the midfield. And, and I think they they made a calculated decision. It went wrong. It went massively wrong. But I think they they that happened due to them pushing that um, that philosophy of efficiency a bit too far. And I think they realised it themselves as well. And uh, you, you're you're seeing that now. Um, what they're doing is instead saying, okay, we, we pushed it a bit too far. Now let's rebase the balance sheet because what we did in those two years was we repaid, uh, 110 million pounds of bank loans, um, which otherwise would have been two, maybe three players. So what they've said is that instead of that, that other 88 million and that 72 million also being repaid down over the next five years or so, um, at the cost of investment, let's rebase our balance sheet to zero. Uh, essentially, wipe that out, and that cash flow, which would have otherwise repaid those loans, can go into investments. And that's not just investment in players; and uh, that's investment in whatever is necessary going forward. So this is this would be things like any any other uh, future facilities investments or infrastructure investments, any sort of software related costs in relation to any. Uh, change to the uh, TV model, uh, etc. So I think that's what they've done. They've increased their the capacity to be able to deal with shocks in future. Whereas what the debt was doing previous to this was it was doing the opposite. It was it was limiting their, their ability to deal with, with shocks um, or um, investment needs. So I, I think that what, what they've done is they've they've done well to Realize their mistakes and now um, swallow a pill, which I think was a difficult uh, pill for them to swallow. 
uh, in my opinion. It doesn't come easy for them to sell a minority stake. And I think it, it wasn't a coincidence that that special resolution was passed um, a, a week ago to make those changes at non-executive board level to bring those those fan groups um, into uh, decision-making processes because I, th- I think they had in mind that a special resolution was needed to, to amend the articles to ensure that any future dilution doesn't necessarily have a negative impact um, on the way certain off-the-field issues are managed uh, in terms of the culture of the of the football club, and uh, in, in, in my opinion, they've they've done a good thing here, and they they should be applauded for it. But it's it's not necessarily something that uh, we have to look at and think. Okay, so now um, will the model change? In in my opinion, no, the model will stay the same. And if you look at the financials of uh, Liverpool Football Club it, it, in a break even. Um, accounting period, the the cash generation is approximately 120 million pounds. So if they're generating 120 million pounds per year, um, then I think that is a generous capacity if they are smart and invest in smart people to deploy that capital to be able to compete in the near future. So that that that's my view of things, and that's that's how I, how I think they will view it as well. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think it's um, certainly a case of uh, perhaps largely sticking to the model that they feel um, has worked and served them so well. Um, I, I do th- feel, though, that um, they brought certain elements of their approach from the running of the Boston Red Sox and the dynamics um, around how that um, sport operates, and in particular, Major League Baseball, um, very different to um, not only the Premier League, but um, top-level um, football um, across the world. And uh, I think that's where perhaps there have been certain elements of it that even you know, 12, 13 years into ownership, have caught them slightly off guard, and uh, you know that, that that's why I think that uh, there has been sometimes frustration um, aimed in their direction uh, because they've seemed to be a bit too dogmatic and a bit too rigid in wanting to work to a certain way, um, even when the signs suggest that um, it isn't working all that well. And Nizami, are, are you in agreement, or do you think that? Um, actually, we, we might see a slight change in how they operate, or do you even do you even agree that they have lacked ambition in the first place? Do you do you think that um, they've shown sufficient ambition, and uh, that in fact, um, you know, many fans have perhaps been unfair? So, I don't think uh, I don't think they'll they'll amend their model. Uh, I think I think they believe in the model. It's got them to the top of the mountain. They think it works. And to be honest, they're right. It does work. Football is the most imperfect industry possible out there, I think, at the moment. There's no valuation model for players that's even vaguely standardized. There are There's imperfect information. There are release clauses all over the place. There are markets that people don't access. Um, there are contract uh, fi- finite 
short-term contracts, right? When we're talking about three, four years. So here we've got a we've got lots of opportunity. And I guess the other the other thing that I think FSG I fully believe, and I think they've got buy-in from potentially the management, is that they don't believe in these. There's one player that's that's the only one that um, that's appropriate. So we only we can only buy one player to basically fulfill a role. I think they just think that there's a pool of players, and if you um, and if you get one of these ten players, that works. I would the the thing I would slightly disagree with is I think their conservative approach on where Mo mentioned the paying off of those loans. I think that wasn't just a consequence of a shock. I think that was also the consequence of maximizing their return on the proviso of a sale. So if I take it very, very simply, if you have an asset that's worth, that's valued at a billion, or it's worth a billion, and you have 200 million of loans to pay then when you sell it somebody has to come and pay those loans so they'll give you 800 million for it if you've paid those loans off then automatically it's a one-for-one increase in the capital that you return right because they don't the, the buyer does not have any liabilities to pay off so in this instance i think they've taken a decision where they have thought if i'm if we're selling this the best thing to do is basically make the balance sheet really healthy in terms of we have limited liabilities uh, limited loans that we have that the buyer has to pay, which means that we will maximize the invest the um the value that we get in our pocket. And I think that I and I, I've mentioned it, I mentioned this before, even before the sale um process was publicized. When I saw the balance sheet and saw them doing this, I said, look, this this looks and I think we had a conversation on on this maybe two 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 and a half years ago, because I basically said the only way this makes sense is potentially if you're trying to sell a company. Um, because otherwise, what you're trying to do is maximize the potential revenues. And to maximize the potential revenues, what you want to do is invest at least a certain amount in, in the team to ensure that those um, revenues linked to your uh, success don't dissipate, which essentially is what's happened with the Champions League, right? We we cease to invest uh, appropriately in the, in inverted commas, the assets, of the, the investment decisions were bad and that led to lower future revenues. So here, um, and I think the one thing I would also slightly disagree with I, is I don't think with, without aiming to sound overtly harsh, I don't think it's a, I don't think they should be um, applauded for basically spending money this summer because I think you've got two options. You either lose value in your company or you invest and ensure the appropriate value of the co- the the the, the, com- the value of the company remains right. So you either accept that you're now going to be sixth going forward and by not investing in your company, in which case then your revenues drop and therefore the value of your company drops, or you invest a couple of hundred million, ensure that you're in the Champions League. You've got an increase in um, revenues of eighty. You know, eighty million, let's say, ballpark, um, which equates to what twenty percent, fifteen percent of your actual overall revenue. So, mm. in that sense, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a them doing something um, that's 
uh, that's altruistic or anything. I think that's a very, very kind of um, strategic decision, right? We have to invest in this because otherwise we become a top six Europe, Europa League club, which uh, and the revenues for that are disproportionately lower than a Champions League club. And if we have then any aspirations to sell this club going forward, and moreover, if there is a conversation to be had in two years about um, potentially selling rights individually for teams abroad, then Liverpool Football Club being a super club, uh, a Champions League regular in the latter stages, means that's a hell of a lot bigger value than a couple of hundred million that we're going we're gonna to spend today. So I think I think there's that there's that balance that we have to bring in that this isn't a um, oh we made the wrong decision this is a oh crap we've just lost value on this um, um, on the company we need to make sure that we we um, rebalance the value of this and that's what this is in terms of your specific question regarding the investment I think it's a good thing and I think for all of the reasons that Mo, Mo's outlined. You have um, essentially a portion of your future revenues would have been going in, uh, going into paying a debt, which now will be uh, will not be required, and therefore can go to uh, you know potentially um, investment in 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 the squad, and so that's always going to be a positive. Yeah, completely, and um, you know I I share that view that. Uh, you know, there certainly has to be a level of investment maintained within the playing squad. Um, you know, we, we saw in summer 2019, off the back of the winning Champions League, that there was minimal spend in that transfer window. And, uh, you know, had the club more proactively future planned by investing perhaps in even a midfielder each summer, um, it wouldn't have got to the point last season where, um, so much of the midfield had aged out essentially and uh, you know that that was um, hopefully a lesson learned that will not be repeated again or at least um, whilst um, the owners are, are, are at the helm um, but that, that segues nicely then into my, my next um, question and just sticking with you uh, again on that Lizani um, so as we saw in, in the most recent transfer window, um, transfer fees reached unprecedented levels in, uh, in, 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 in this um, summer transfer window just gone. And even rookie players were going for figures of £50 million pounds or more with only a small handful of appearances to their name. Um, so on that point, do you think that a similar equity raise process could be a viable route if the club wanted to generate funds to facilitate transfer uh, deals in, in the future. Because clearly, um, based on the model that exists currently, um, there is a heavily incentivized um, payment structure for um, the first team squad, which does result in a very, very big um, wage bill overall. And um, that obviously in turn reduces the extent to which um, funds are then available for investment into players. Um, and though clearly, you know, revenue should increase in the future through greater rights fees from the Champions League, um, which is expanding to um, a new format next season, and with it will come greater uh, prize money. And the uh, Premier League um, 
rights will also be going up um, from uh, the 25-26 season as well. Nonetheless, um, transfer fees are only going in one direction, and that's up. That's a significant rate of inflation to to boot. So, all that said, do you think that that is a potentially viable route, or do you think that the FSG model would simply not allow for it, and that they are fundamentally opposed to the notion of um, raising funds through sale of equity um, in order to invest back into intangible assets? Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, they're every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the latter. I think that they're, they're opposed to the idea of that. And I, th- I think they fully believe that they have a model that is self-sustainable, that that works. I think, I think they think that the relative advantage that they have in terms of revenues should entail them being able to utilize those revenues in a comparatively sophisticated way to ensure that they have the appropriate assets available. The interesting thing I think that's happened over the last, um, I, w- I would say, five years for Liverpool specifically, is that those comparative advantages in terms of the analytics are no longer comparative advantages because every club in the entire Premier League now has an analytics department that's extremely um well run and well um and has very very um appropriately qualified individuals on so whereas previously i think their argument was that there's lots of arbitrage opportunities because hey the valuation here does not equate to the real valuation of this player I think that's now narrowing down. And this is going back to your point where you've got rookie players that are valued at 50, 50 million, right? I mean, Lavia being a, being a very, um, archetype, um, of, of such a, of such an instance. And I think what I foresee happening, I thought sort of touched upon this in the previous, um, discussion is what I foresee happening is that there will be a, a desire to look further, further afield. So, um, whereas I think the initial FSG model was a very definitive preference for somebody, uh, for players in the Premier League, I think that would now not be viable given the valuation differential between a, a player with the same statistical profile in the, in playing in the Premier League versus the Bundesliga, um, the the, uh, the Portuguese, Portuguese League, um, Liga, etc. And I think that 
profiling now, um, that's where they all think the arbitrage is. So I think in, in FSG's view, the revenue advantage they have, and, and I think we're probably going to touch on this going forward, is basically the additional uh, Premier League um, limitations in terms of spend that are going to come in over the next few years will mean that that status quo is embedded in the system. And that, and as long as they've got, first, a very good coach in place, and secondly, a recruitment team that is able to work intelligently, I think they think that they'll be ahead of the curve. Does that make sense? I mean, in terms of how I, yeah, how they're, how I think that they're foreseeing, uh, they're seeing this dynamic. Yeah, and no, I, I think you're right. I think that um, much as I'd love to see them start to adapt and evolve that model, and that's something that I've been crying out for almost. If if uh, FSG were to remain, and if they were not going to move on, um, my my slight concern is is that they will try to stick to a model that I think doesn't fully recognize the extent to which um, the market when it comes to um, recruitment is concerned. And I think that's where, you know, the valuations that we're now seeing and we'll perhaps see in the next two, three, four, five years as rights fees continue to go up um, will make that model really strain at the seams, if you will. And uh, that's why I think, you know, they need to look at and at the very least be more open-minded to um, alternatives. But my fear is that, no, they'll try and stick to recruiting in a way that's uh, in line with that self, self-sustainable self model. All well and good, but as you say, uh, perhaps they will almost be forced to look at um, signings from abroad. Um, we know that um, over many years now under FSG, uh, we, we have barely um, looked to tap into the South American market, and that is a market that certain clubs, um, such as uh, Brighton in particular, have been very successful at ex- exploiting. And um, not only that, but also um, clearly other clubs around the continent um, have been very successful in um, you know, taking advantage of that too. Even City um in in the last several years have been more proactively looking at um signing players from um the south american continent um so perhaps that might be fsg's um compromise and evolution of that model but uh we, we shall see on that one mo mo uh, is there anything that you wanted to add on to that um, point as well around um recruitment and whether fsg might be minded to um, raise equity in order to facilitate transfer deals? I, I think uh, they would be very re- reluctant, uh, in my opinion. I think uh, just the size of this deal shows, and will show, I, I, I believe, that they raised just enough and gave away just enough equity to cover those um, imminent debt uh, payments, um, at, at least a bank loan, which expires in January uh, twenty five. So that, that, that shows you that they're very reluctant to take anybody on board and dilute their, 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 their ownership. And they've done it as a last resort. Um, I, I would say that they, they see that the club's, um, self-sustaining model 
works for them um, just in terms of their principles, their efficiency principles in running their assets. And I think what they'll see is if you if you rebase that balance sheet to zero and, and you have that 120 million pounds of cash coming in every year, uh, that would be enough for them. And what they will instead try and do is scale up the revenue side of the model, um, being able to sell uh, more sort of in, in the way of commercial rights, sponsorships, etc. try and replicate what United have done and how United have increased their their revenue scale uh, more more than any anything else, and what they'll what they'll also kind of uh, see is again probably from the United from the Chelsea um, example of the last several years that there is there is a little bit of diminishing returns when when you when you spend money without thinking, and what's potentially more important than just gross uh, transfer expenditure is the right expertise behind the scenes, the right coach, uh, head coach and uh, uh, coaches uh, behind the scenes as well. Um, and the success is, is, is a balance of all of those things, in, including money. But but if money is the, the biggest factor, uh, then they, they do have the examples out there that uh, there is a big diminishing return when it comes to stockpiling players or spending money on on um, very expensive players because not that many expensive players are actually that successful statistically. Most aren't actually. So so they'll they'll keep relying on the the underlying identifiers um, rather than going for the players that are that are hyped and that are that if if we, if we if we look at the kind of um, the data set that we, we're looking at, I know I know we haven't compiled it or anything like that, but if we're going to say that the transfer market is is highly inflated and and it's being inflated by uh, recent um, expenditure in uh, um, European football and and from uh, outside of Europe, uh, we also have to look at the examples of those um, big fees and and we'll see that. They, those are probably very, uh, very, very inefficient transfers. So what's inflated? Potentially what's inflated are players that are not that good and don't, don't, don't actually justify those inflated prices. So FSG, I think, will be confident in being able to identify real undervalued assets, the ones that the, the big teams don't go for, but FSG can exploit, um, First, in, in in buying them at cheaper rates, and also having uh, the the coaches in place to to train them um, mm. as well. Sorry, well, can I come back on that? Just yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think I think there's a I think that's a really interesting point because I think the one thing I would disagree with here is that I think they're not. You can't hide from the fact that the good players are the good players. And the great players of the great players, right? I think that this idea that somehow there's this hidden gem that, that appears, um, that we're going to find, I think is a f- bit of a fallacy. And so when you say the, the players that aren't going to be, um, uh, that aren't hype, I think the high profile here is potentially just, um, hyped rather than everybody appreciates, like everybody appreciates Dominic. Soboslai was a very good player. The fact that he has, and this is in, um, in the, in the RB model, he has a $60 million 
uh, sorry, um, your release clause means that they must think he's pretty damn special. And I think everybody across the um, across the footballing world what, does know that. So I think there's no there's this idea where, and I, I and I guess that's where I just wanted. I don't think there's an idea of they don't want to go and sign the best talent. I think it's more they want to buy the they, they want to buy the best talent that fits. And I think those two things is how where they see the asymmetry with clubs like Manchester United and Chelsea, where Chelsea are buying. I mean, Enzo Fernandez is a brilliant footballer. Whether Chelsea end up at 12th this year or 14th this year is irrelevant to the statement. Enzo Fernandez is a brilliant football player. If Enzo Fernandez played for Liverpool, he would be elite and everybody under the sun would be talking about him. Now, what they, and again, this is the, I guess, I think this is the dynamic that FSG from their understanding of sports in the US have come to realize is that it's not, the, the technical and talent itself is not the only marker point. It's basically how it's integrated into a team dynamic and wh- whether it fits all those, um, all the requirements. So, so I think that's where they think they have the right analytics team in place, where they can then do um, they can then do the modeling that suggests, well, no, we're trying to achieve this, and this is the field tilt as a consequence of putting this player in this position. And I think that's where they they think their comparative advantage is because they've got a coach that improves players, and then they can identify the right players and play the right premium for that player but they'll know what player to pay the premium for it's not the fact that they're not willing to pay the premium it's just the fact that they they think they are able to identify the player that's worth the premium and that's the differential i think for 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 the f in the fsg model so you are willing to pay a world record fee for virgil van dyke because he is the unicorn Right, and I think that's what they've—that's they, how the FSG model works. In the same way, as in, I think the one thing that's really interesting is they were willing to pay a world, uh, sorry, a British record fee for Caicedo, right? And Caicedo doesn't really fit lots of the parameters, but I think they just think he's a unicorn, so he comes in and the entire team gets better. The other thing I think going forward that I feel is going to increase this arbitrage opportunity is I think that with this influx of players coming into the leagues and especially this idea that, oh, this more, uh, it's becoming more and more popular for teams like Brighton and Brentford and, um, uh, and West Ham's even, I mean, yeah, buying these players that then transition into one of the top six teams is that I feel that going forward, a lot of these agents will want release clauses and it will be part of the reason they come to these things. So it's not to make the next step near and impossible. Um, and I think that trans, and I think that's, that's a direction of travel that, 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 that the, um, that the model's going towards. And I can envisage FSG have almost factored that into the future, um, acquisition strategy, investment acquisition strategy, um, and thought, well, actually, this is where we need to basically pivot towards because in the UK, we are not going to buy anybody in the playing in the Premier League that does not have a release clause because they're overinflated otherwise, right? We are not getting into negotiations with West Ham because at any point we walk in, we walk in, they've just added 20 million to the, on, um, to, to the number. And so that's why you get Paqueta going at, you know, 85 million potentially at the beginning and, and 80 million being rejected 
at the beginning of this transfer window. So I think that's where the transition is. I think we're in this interesting position where a lot of these elite South American players that might want that step into Europe might come to one of these um, bottom half Premier League clubs as a transition point. But in due course, what will happen is that they will be aware that that's that it's a transition point to a bigger club. So we don't want to diminish the opportunity to go to that bigger club. So look, fine, we'll come and play for you for three years, but we want a 40 million release clause in our contract today, which when you're coming from South America and somebody's paying, you know, um, 6 million for you, isn't a ridiculous thing to put in. And I think that's where that this dynamic is going to go. So I think going back to my original point, I don't think FSG are averse to basically paying uh, large premiums. I just think that they... Are very selective in what in who they play that premium for. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think they clearly uh, were willing to do that twice in 2018, and then um, left it five years before they were willing to go to that extent again. Though some may argue that they did go in and around that with the signing of Nunez um, in the summer of 22. Um, just before we move on from that, Mo, was there anything you wanted to come back on on on, on that in terms of what Nizami just had to say? No, I, I completely agree. Actually, I think um, yeah, there's uh, it's it's it all comes down to value, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the thing that we have to accept with FSG is that they have uh, a much lower margin of error. So when when they see the value there in a player and all the boxes are ticked and the fee is a uh, fee contains a, a premium, then they will trigger it. But they won't do it four or five times in five years. They'll do it once or twice in in five years and then build around that player um, if if that player proves to be good enough or um, build around whatever other superstar they proven superstars they've got um, with more value players. Uh, just, just because I think that's how, uh, the, the whole private equity cultural way of thinking trickles down into how the, the, the club is managed. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with libertyshield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want whenever I want and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, Mac boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Mm. Completely agree. I completely yeah. agree. I think yeah. you have um, you have foundational investments, 
and everything everything else becomes periphery to that investment, but so, but should be facilitating the maximization of the initial investment. So that's essentially how they see the acquisition strategy. We'll buy these three pillars, and everything else basically builds around that and ensures that uh, and facilitates the optimization of those three pillars. Now moving on, um, and thank you for, for for that. That was very very good discussion there around um, recruitment and the approach to recruitment by FSG. But going back to um, their original intent, which was a full sale of the club, and uh, at some point um, you, you'd have to imagine they will look to test the waters again. And whether it becomes um, open or something that is done more discreetly, um, they will seek um, a buyer. Um, they bought the club back in 2010 as an investment. Um, Dennis the Equity have invested into Liverpool Football Club um, with a view to making a return on their investment. So at some point, both of those parties, and, and let's not forget um, Redbird Capital invested into FSG, um, back in 2021, um, they too will look to get a return on their investment um, where, um, you know, perhaps the most valuable of all of the uh, Fenway assets within their portfolio is, is concerned. Um, they, they all collectively will at some point look to test the waters. So, um, Mo, let's start with you on, on, on that subject. Um, what factors do you feel will be key to them looking to sell the club. So what, what do you think might have to happen um, or what scenarios might arise in order for them to feel right? Okay, let, let's now dip our toe in the water and see, um, see see what the mood is and see if there are any potential takers. I think uh, macroeconomics is, is very important here. I think uh, the next time they do this, the timing has to be right in terms of the... Uh, liquidity in the world's capital markets and mm -hmm. also when there is a little bit more stability in terms of competitive sales going on concurrently um so s such as the man united sale happening right now in in my opinion kind of kind of kind of threw a spanner in the works if i if i'm honest with you i think if that wasn't happening then they would have got an, a little bit more interest in my opinion not 4.5 billion dollars worth of interest but but a little bit more. So the timing has to be right, um, both uh, in terms of macroeconomics and also where the football club is. So the football club has to be in a similar position where its uh, its name is up in lights. It's competing, um, even if it's not winning everything. I think I think um, as long as it's uh, competing and winning things on a relative basis, uh, then uh, that would be ideal as well. So. Uh, when you're when you're going into the market and your intention is to go in to sell something in the billions, what you're essentially doing is you're approaching parties. It almost sounds shameless, but in the way the Glazers have done five rounds of bidding, because let's face it, what's happened is nobody's meeting their valuation and they're going they are the ones going to each party and presenting something new, something remote in the future, something that could potentially change, I don't know, the revenue model or, or whatever, and, and putting that in a PowerPoint and hoping that they respond with another £200 million added to it. Um, that's what you have to do um, at this level. 
Um, so you need to have your advisors actually going out there and and pitching you. It's not it's not going to be a case of you put yourself up for sale and you think that because you're the uh, jewel in the crown of English football, you're you're, you're going to get um, a queue of buyers. It doesn't doesn't quite work like that. You have to actually go and convince people. Um, and as as long as the appetite is there, political appetite in um, whatever nation you're selling this asset in then it, you will be successful otherwise what you would need to do is be a bit more become a bit more realistic about um what the actual valuation is and and do an exercise beyond the usual you know the forbes models etc uh, to understand real value um and then come back into the market and, and and think okay so if i sold it at a slight discount now <laughs> compared to my initial expectations what can fsg do with this money so what's the thing what why are we selling are we selling just because um we want the cash and we want to get out of england and and football's not what we thought it was going to be compared to american sports where cash generation is is actually way 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 more um then what am I going to do with the money? Is there an alternative place where I can invest it? Or am I going to have to return these funds to um, my uh, shareholders? So all, all of those things have to be joined up rather than um, something that, it, in my opinion, was done in, in a panicky sort of way because they, they realized that they couldn't um, get this European Super League going and um they had to do something with regard to the cash outflows that were imminent and um the lack of uh being able to compete with a nation state club thanks for that um and uh nizami um are there any other factors that you think would potentially come into play when it comes to the decision around looking to put the club back on the market again no, I think I think uh, Mo's outlined all of the uh, pertinent um, considerations before they put that in the uh, they put the club back on the market. I think there's also a point to be made here. Is I think I think this minority sh- um, sale is essentially a pivot point to looking at those opportunities. These people are essentially um, individuals who have worked on advising. Um, sale of um, sports franchises so they have the appropriate contacts they have they already have that uh, network in place to be able to leak or um, gauge the interest across the uh, across the market so i think this is i think this this in it's a very it's very specific this desire to sell to this specific group because the amount we're talking about is quite small. There are lots of people who potentially would be willing to invest a minority in something. Um, just, I mean, if you think about huge um, private equity firms, you know, a couple of hundred million is pocket change, right? No, that's, it's a rounding error. So oh. it's it's not, they haven't made this decision on the on 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 a whim. It's a, they've chosen these people because they have access to those to basically facilitate future sales future um uh, uh future directions of how to expand liverpool football club whether that's within the broadcasting rights which which again um 
um, the the founders of uh, Dynasty were previously engaged with, i.e., selling rights um, sports uh, spot rights of sports clubs um, across the U.S. market. So I think here um, there is a two tier kind. Uh, there's the two tier consideration that FSG have made prior to basically selling this. Um, so I think there's a definite element of that, and. You know, and to a certain extent, there's an argument where this sale is essentially a fee for um, Dennis to be able to sell the club in future point, right? As in, like, we'll give you this added at this rate on the proviso that when we sell Liverpool Football Club, you'll get a a kicker off the back of that three percent on whatever the sale value is. So I think that that's one angle that I think um, we should just be um, cognizant of that there's a potential play there um, given given the chosen partner here. Sure, sure. I, I think one of the other things that they'll also look at is uh, the growth potential of the key revenue streams and those revenue streams are broadcast, um, commercial and match day. And with match day, um, the Anfield World ending expansion is about to conclude in the next uh, two to three months and then the scope to um, expand the stadium further um, is is complicated um, at best um, and even then um, for example if there was scope to expand um, the, 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 King, uh, the Kennedale leash stand um, the additional revenue to be generated from perhaps a replica of the main stand on that other side of the stadium where the Sir Dale Gleish stand currently sits. We're probably only talking in region about £10 million. So we'd barely make a dent to any um, valuation model. Um, then commercial and broadcast are clearly bigger revenue streams. And the club will have to, in FSG in particular, have to assess the extent to which there is room for growth when it comes to commercial. Commercial has seen an appreciable increase in revenue um, over the last um, couple of years. Um, but to what extent can that grow beyond its current levels? Uh, again, we're probably not talking very significant amounts, um, though I, I would suspect that the, the club will be keen to hit the £300 million mark when it comes to um, revenue from commercial over the next uh, three to four years, um, that revenue um, sat at around 247 million in 21, 22. Um, and when uh, the new night deal um, takes effect from the 25, 26 season, um, then at that point, um, they, they may be closing in on the 300 million pound mark. Um, but to get that number up to 350 to 400 million or more, um, would take some serious doing, and uh, I, I don't think that that will be achievable in the short term. Um, and we're probably talking a significant um, distance away in the future, unless there were um, changes to um, commercial um, revenue opportunities, um, which allowed it to tap into. Um, opportunities that perhaps don't currently exist or very much embryonic at this stage. And then finally, um, match, uh, sorry, uh, broadcast. So we almost certainly will see growth in um, broadcast uh, rights deals for both the Premier League and also the Champions League, as we touched on earlier on. 
um, though whether they will result in you know fifty to hundred million pounds worth of additional revenue a year um, when those deals take effect, um, the, there is the potential for that, um, and that I think is why um, you know FSG will be perhaps hoping that um, there will be room to grow that valuation up to six billion. Though again, there will likely be a fair distance between that valuation and whatever valuation um, is produced by the different valuation models that exist. So again, there's likely to be that discrepancy. Um, so as and when they do look to test the market once more, I suspect that we will have a similar situation at that point um, to that which we found uh, between November and February um, of FSG ultimately being frustrated in uh, not seeing anyone come up to meet their valuation. And as Mo also touched on, when you start talking figures in the region of five to six billion, there are very, very, very few people that can um, raise capital um, to finance such a deal. Um, so again, you know, you are talking a very limited pool. And, uh, you know, when Manchester United, um, Tottenham, and perhaps even the Cronkies at Arsenal, um, or possibly looking to um, sell um, in the next three, four, five years. Um, you know, the number of buyers out there um, will um, certainly be uh, potentially sport for choice. Okay, so uh, let, let's conclude then. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll just very briefly um, touch on the wider landscape around football um, in terms of financial strength, in terms of competitiveness. So um, looking at the Premier League rivals, uh, United, uh, City, Chelsea, um, Arsenal, uh, Newcastle United now, and even Tottenham Hotspur, um, how, how do you feel, guys, um, that Liverpool is geared up to compete against those, um, given that we will be operating um, with to the FSG model uh, for the foreseeable future? And on top of that, what effect, if any, do you think that UEFA's new cost control measures might have to help enable the club to compete against not only those rivals, but even um, some of the big boys um, across Europe as well? So interested in your thoughts. So Mo, if I can come to you first, um, what, what are your views on this? Um to be honest, now that this um, rebasing of the balance sheet, as I call it, <laughs> has happened, I'm actually a bit more more confident. I think um, I perceive that Liverpool Football Club are the most attractive of all of those clubs in terms of um, footballing projects for uh, footballers, young young footballers, so footballers in their early twenties um, and mid twenties. I think um, as long as Klopp is here. Or, or some sort of um, good succession planning is is done. Liverpool will maintain that above all of those other teams. Um, maybe maybe except for Man City. Uh, I think that the Chelsea project, in my opinion, um, it it was one of those things where at the time, maybe about six months ago, I actually liked the project, even though it was very scattered. On I actually liked the project. Um, but I think as time goes on, even the good young players that they've signed 
um, in, in, in my opinion, will see a dilution in their value and their, their, their brand value, um, because of the, the turmoil of the pitch and them not being able to translate any of their quality into actual cohesive performances. And I think that will also impact the kind of players that are attracted to Chelsea as a project. I think uh, Newcastle uh, is going to be a great competitor, but I've I've always said with Newcastle, it's a slightly longer term project. I think like you're, you're talking about five years until they start directly competing against us. And I think as long as we're there with that cash flow of 100 plus million every uh, season, I think we'll have uh, decent dibs on very, very good players going forward. And that's something that I think that FSG will be working on very hard uh, behind the scenes, especially in relation to um, getting that that technical team back together again um, uh, to be able to identify those those signings and and get Klopp working with uh, the technical team again because I I think there there was there was a threat for a little bit that we we're going to move away from this model and go into this general manager style model which I wasn't a fan of. I think it's, it's better when people work together, people with different skills work together. And um, I, I, I'm actually quite confident that the landscape actually is something that we can now um, compete in because of, because uh, we've freed ourselves from these debts for, for, for a little bit. I think the, the new FFB is going to be interesting because the, the, the new FFB, when it, when it, when it comes in proper, say the 70% squad cost rule, I think that's going to be very, very big for Liverpool and also potentially something that we can take advantage of over, not necessarily City or United because they're going to have that capacity, obviously, but some of the smaller teams are going to are going to experience some problems, I think, coming uh, to terms with that seventy uh, percent ratio. Um, Everton, for example, I think I think um, is is a good case study in that seventy percent being very very pushed. So I think um, that's something that uh, FSG will be looking forward to. Um, and uh, more important than that, I think they'll be looking forward to the outcome of this investigation into Man City because that's ultimately what's going to tell them whether the new rules will have teeth or not. I think mm. a, a lot of clubs like Man United and Liverpool have a very strong compliance environment. But um, as someone who used to be an auditor in this industry, um, the industry itself doesn't have a very strong compliance environment. In fact, it's it's the weakest compliance environment that I've ever seen. Um, so uh, American owners that, that come in are often very, very surprised by how 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 bad the compliance in environment is and and how they fe- felt as though the rules that were coming in in their favor in FFP could be so easily and brazenly um uh, I, I'd say be uh we'll find loopholes within so I, I I think let's see what happens with this Man City issue, and then that will tell them as well how how they'll be able to compete, and whether that that also has a domino domino effect, in my opinion, on um, their um, appetite to stay in English football. So yeah, I think I think a lot of potential change um, ahead of us, and a lot of uncertain, unknown territory, uh, which makes it very um, appropriate. Uh, in how they've raised capital and how little um, and how limited that capital raise was just so that it allows them to 
compete again, but at the same time, not give up too much upside potential in any valuation increases. I think it's interesting what you said about the commercial revenue as well, because one of the things with the commercial revenue is that I completely agree with you in that it's reaching its limits because um, if you also look closely, about 95% of that is UK-based, um, which tells you the international market is where uh, they need to really um, scale that up. But I, but again, it's it's very difficult to tell how they can do that because I, I don't know if you, if you guys know, but a lot of the international market is done through licensing. It's nearly impossible to do it with um, direct supply um, because we just don't have the infrastructure to be able to deliver those things. So licensing is the way forward with that. But the, the downside with licensing is that um, even though it's certain income, it's very, very low. Uh, so in, in my opinion, the scale up has to happen in a very innovative way in the media uh, side of things. And hopefully it's something that the Premier League as um, a body, as a cartel can can um, get to get grips with because they'll have to be the ones that create a platform to be able to sell those things both uh, domestically and internationally, or at least put enough pressure on uh, Sky and, and, and TNT uh, and so that they feel enough of a threat to keep increasing uh, those broadcast revenues. Um, and I, I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's an exciting world, but a very uncertain world um, ahead for FSG and, and, and Liverpool financially. Mm. Yeah, some great points there. And uh, Nizami, um, just coming to you, and I, I will come back more to a couple of points you made there, but before I do so, um, just go over to Nizami and see if you wanted to add further to that. No, I mean, I think those are yeah, some very pertinent points made there by Mo. I completely agree with everything he's said, actually. Um, I think the, I would say, I, speaking very much as a Liverpool fan, I'm ecstatic the direction Manchester United have gone, where they have given um, the keys to the castle to a pretty, un- um, a manager who's got, no history on managing a big club um, no. who decides that he only he can only ever coach anybody he's previously coached, which is an interesting strategy. Um, well, so, the, the biggest red flag um, for anyone involved in due diligence when it came to recruiting a manager should have been when he perhaps identified Wout Weghorst as a potential Manchester United player. Um, and look how that worked out. But yeah, as you say, more power to him. Absolutely, absolutely, and I and I like this. They can. I like the idea of them winning pointless EF, EFL games and then coming back to uh, to reality when they play a, a league game. So that's. I mean, that's going pretty well for us. Um, I agree fully with Mo in terms of. I was quite intrigued by the by the Chelsea project. I think it was an it was an interesting idea. We buy all these pretty young, very talented um, players across the globe, and then and and then will run them for seven years, eight years, nine years, whatever it is. Um, and it'll take off. And I think the, um, yeah, I think, I, I think it doesn't look like it's gone. The interesting thing there though is that because they've got ridiculous amounts of, uh, sorry, the, the length of these contracts are pretty long. Um, there's going to be a pivot point because they've got, they're going to eventually get a good manager who knows what he's doing. I mean, I think Poch may be that manager in a medium term. Um, and then you, the collection of players is just, I think it's far too talented for that to be a, like, to be 
to, to, to be constant failure. I think there's, there's they've got too much talent. The interesting thing for me here is going to be at, if there's a point where these players that they've bought, um, they're not successful enough in the short term that there is actually a few of them who decide to hand in transfer requests or, you know, make a, uh, a, a vocal about being unhappy at Chelsea. And I think that may blow up that project pretty quickly if that, if something like that happens, but it's going to be predicated on how well they're doing the short term. So I think for them, this, this year and next year are really, really important because you can imagine, yeah, you can imagine Enzo Fernandez does not want to sit play, um, 11th in the, in the league or eighth in the league. Um, and playing the conference league next season, let's say, uh, for argument's sake, um, for too, too, for too long in his career, even though he's young. I think it's just, he's, you know, he's, he's won the World Cup. Everybody un- under the sun, um, is an admirer of his. So I think, I think there's going to be a point where, and it'll be interesting to see whether they're able to turn it around before that point or after. So I think that's a, that's a really interesting thing to keep an eye on, um, over the next kind of year or so. I think the, the, the couple of teams I think that are interesting to watch here. I think firstly, Arsenal are, Arsenal are very, very interesting because they've got, they've got, the revenues coming in from their stadiums because of the association with, well, the, the proximity to the city. They also have a very, very young team that can run quite a lot, that they can run quite uh, for the next five, six years quite easily. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing to see how that develops, whether Arteta can take the next step. Um, and then, and then what happens with Spurs? Because while Spurs, I, I think, uh, we can all agree that we're significantly ahead of them. That new stadium gives them a lot of avenues of revenue going forward. And if they manage to break into the Champions League this season, that um, and and start creating something, I think that might it might facilitate um, another jump next year um, in terms of their revenue generation sector. Because you've got a you know eighty thousand um, seater stadium there, which has all of the ancillary. Um, uh, events that it hosts so it's got lots of revenue generation there plus it's very close to the city so you've got all the bankers consultants you know like um basically essentially where where arsenal made their money uh, during the during the wenger years right where you had basically everybody everybody every broker in the city had a series of um season tickets to arsenal where they they give them to their clients i think something like that depending on how well um Spurs do might precipitate out of out of that. So I think it's a, but I still think going back to Mo's point, I think I feel that we're very very well um, positioned here, um, given this um, initiation of this um, revenue. Sorry, um, this cost limit of 70% or 85% currently and then 70% over the next kind of three years. I think that does give us a massive comparative advantage, but we've already got the second highest revenues potentially with, um, uh, with more work done off the field. Um, we can raise those even further and think that that then sets you like Mo's kind of articulated perfectly. You know, you're playing with a hundred million a year of, of cash that you can kind of go out and sign players. And bear in mind, this is, this isn't a, you know, you buy a player for 40 million doesn't mean you're giving 40 million out of the door, right? This is a hundred million that you have to pay this year, right? So potentially that what, what does that mean? That means you're basically able to buy, um, 500, well, $400 million worth of players. Right. And then if you want to hit, take the whole hit at one time. Um, 
So I think that's a you know I mean given the idea that they're four to five year contracts I think that that gives you that gives you a great position to be sitting in, um, and but the one thing I would, I yeah I the one thing I do think that FSU need to do is take less risks. So I think they have to basically. Um, there's a point where, like Mo mentioned right at the beginning, every season we seem to go in with the playing squad being incomplete, and. You know, and then and then basically it's all based on luck. And I think we need to get away from that. We're now a super club. We shouldn't be going into seasons with, oh, if this happens, then we're com- our season completely falls apart. Which I think we, f- I feel that we're going into every season with at least one or two of those um, scenarios. So I'm very, very optimistic. Um, yeah, I'm very, very optimistic. Um, yeah. And I, but I just hope that this, the precipitation of this investment means that we now go into the direction of let's not now cut corners. Let's go and, and, and ensure that we, um, uh, we minimize the risk in each season, which essentially should mean that you're guaranteed to finish third if you minimize risk. Mm. Yeah. That, again, some great points uh, laid out there, Nizam. Thank you for those. Um, yeah, just to come back on some of the points that you both raised. Um, first of all, in terms of the city case, um, you know, I, I did know that recently um, Abu Dhabi did, um, I think, speak to or was in communication with, in some formal fashion, with um, uh, the prime minister or his office about specifically the charges, and uh, so that, on the one hand, is concerning. Uh, but not surprising in that uh, I believe the Saudis did try to use influence um, when they were embroiled in a protracted um, takeover of Newcastle United, which um, took quite some time specifically because of concerns that the Premier League had about um, Saudi, its ownership, um, the ownership structure, and obviously more broadly, um, some of the criticisms that the Saudi regime comes in for. Um, and, uh, you know, they did look to use their influence with the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson to try and um, get that deal over the line. And, and that deal was um, eventually um, finalised. Um, so, so that is a concern. Um but you know, if if the Premier League doesn't allow the government to influence its um, investigation, which will hit its fifth anniversary um, in March, then that that could be a real game changer and could be a massive boon to Liverpool Football Club and indeed all clubs that are operating a fully or largely self-sustaining model. Um, and I say that because at the moment, uh, the majority of clubs do not operate a fully self-sustaining model. Um, there are very few clubs, in fact, um, that have um, owners that don't invest any of their own funds into the operational um, costs incurred by the clubs. Um, and then in, in terms of um, the uh, position of some of those other rival clubs, um, what's interesting is that um, when FSG first came in, um, the ownership um, 
model and structure that they were most inspired by was, was that of um, Arsenal's and the one that Kronk, the Cronkies operated. But as we know, they have evolved their model. Um, they are also the owners of the LA Rams, an NFL club, and unlike Premier League clubs, NFL franchises do generate significant profits um, in general. And um, my understanding is is that um, Arsenal do benefit from money from um, from from that, um, and, and that's how they've been able to um, finance um, some of these very very big deals um, for transfers over the last few years, even if. Um, that their revenue um, streams was, have suggested that those deals should have been beyond them. Um, but, you know, they, they've operated within the rules by and large. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's something that has worked well for them. That being said, um, I know that um, they, they've still been on UEFA's radar when it comes to um, spending. Um, and, um, yeah, cer- certainly with the likes of Chelsea and Manchester United, um, those are also clubs where um, the current financing arrangements um, are difficult. You know, they obviously operate in a much less risk-averse way. Um, but then at the same time with the rule changes that we talked about around cost control and the 70% rule around investment on play wages and amortization could be a bit of a tricky one for those two clubs in particular to navigate. And with City, you know, that that in itself is a podcast on its own. Um, you know, I've talked about them at length. But I, I agree with both of you. I'm I'm actually a bit more confident now than I was perhaps previously about being able to be competitive with the FSG model in place. Um, and I think if we do see some of these um, charges leveled against rival clubs um, be upheld, um, that that could only be a good thing for Liverpool Football Club. Um, you know, I've, I've made no secret about the fact that I, I've felt for some time that um, under FSG ownership, we were being held back. Um, though I still think that we can still be successful if we are operating in an optimised way and are very smart in terms of recruitment um, and uh, a little bit less risk averse. And I think if we have those um measures and actions in place then you know even with the fsg model and some of the constraints that comes with it i i do think that you know we, we can certainly see um more silverware more, more good times um and certainly with, with clock um at the helm right guys so um again quite a lengthy pod uh, but you know we have delved into um some great um topics related to this latest development around investment into uh, Liverpool Football Club by Dynasty Equity. Um, and uh, really appreciate your time. And listeners, I hope you also have uh, gleaned, um, you know, some new information and um, some thought-provoking insight into um, uh, into this into this story. So um, starting with you, Nizami, um, where can people find you on um, um, X or Twitter as it used to be known? Yeah, I'm on at aka Nizami on Twitter, and I think that's the only social media I use currently. Excellent, thank you. And uh, Mo, um, where can people find you on uh, Twitter and X? Emotion on on X. Excellent, and 
Mo also is a frequent um, contributor on uh, various um, spaces on uh, Twitter as well. So can be commonly found um, sharing his uh, insight and uh, thoughts on on those as well. Um, Excellent. So thank you again. Thank you both. I really appreciate your time. And listeners, um, I hope to be again in uh, back again, I should say, in the next several weeks. And all being well, I might even have somebody um, from the uh, agency side of things um, in terms of representation of footballers um, on Money Talks. And that should be a really insightful uh, podcast where we can learn a bit more about um, what is involved in um, transfer deals and about representing players and um, you know the many things that go into these deals that we we really hear about or learn about, and um, you know that that should certainly be an interesting one. So do keep an eye out for that, and I aim to um, have that out for you, great listeners, in the next several weeks. But until next time, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.